just want to allow people that hopefully know in my story that they look at refugee as an investment in their countries and cities rather than a burden. You know, I and again, I think of refugee who come in like me. I came at the age of 18, no language, no skill, nothing to offer this country. And people helped me and gave me the opportunity and now I'm giving back and serving. Today we are here with Dr. Haval Kelly, a Syrian Kurdish-born cardiologist. He moved to the United States as a refugee just two weeks after 9-11, and 10 months later he enrolled in Georgia State University. He continued to medical school at Morehouse College of Medicine and graduated from his internal medicine residency and cardiology fellowship at Emory University. Dr. Kelly's efforts as a physician and mentor for young students have awarded him with numerous distinctions. He was named a Friend of Freedom in 2017, received the first Points of Light Award after the passing of President George H.W. Bush, and has been praised by Presidents Carter, Bush, Obama, as well as the United Nations Secretary General. President Obama wrote of Dr. Kelly, your experience offers a shining example of the American dream. Hi, Dr. Kelly. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. And so would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners briefly? Yeah, my name is Haval Kelly, and I'm a a Kurdish refugee from Syria. Awesome. And so could you tell us a little bit about your life before arriving in the United States? Yes. uh, You know, the life of a refugee we come all from different backgrounds. You know, I happen to come from more of a privileged background in Syria. My father was a lawyer. My mom was, you know, staying at home. Me and my brother were going to private school in Syria. You know, life was good. Uh, my mom's family were pretty wealthy. So, you know, life was weekends. We were like, you know, hanging out barbecues, going to like, you know, my, my uncle's, you know, pool. You know, it just like any life in a middle-class, upper-class family in America. Uh, but also, you know, we were Kurds. Kurds are the minority in the Middle East, which are under oppression because they don't have their own country. And a lot of the, the country where the Kurds reside are afraid always the Kurds rebel against them. So there's always a political pressure, you know. Uh, so my father was pressured by the Syrian regime and was, you know, tortured and arrested and, when he was released, it wasn't safe to be in Syria anymore. So where did you go from Syria? So we actually crossed the border to Turkey, stayed there for a couple of months, and I realized it wasn't safe anymore to go back. And then somehow, you know, I was at that time, I think, 11 years old. My recollection when we left Turkey, I thought we'd gone on a vacation like we always do. You know, we arrived in the airport in Germany, and next thing I know, you know, we are go into this big building and walk into this room with two bunk beds and a bathroom share with the entire floor. And it right away clicked for me. This is, wasn't a hotel. We were going for vacation. This is different from every time we left Syria for some kind of vacation. So that was the first shock to me as a, as a, as a child. I was like, okay, well, where, where are we right now? What's going on? This is different. Because my parents were hiding a lot from us. And, you know, and this happens to a lot of kids when they're refugee. The parents don't tell the kids what's going on. They're afraid that the kids make a mistake or say something along the journey that they'll get caught and have to be shipped back to their, you know, home country. So that was, you know, 
where we arrived in Germany, and that was 1996. I think it was the around September and the winter in Germany. And so you ended up going to America. Was it Clarkston, Georgia? Yeah, so, you know, we stayed in Germany for six years. The, the immigration system is a little different from America. When you arrive there as asylum, they put you in a refugee camp, like a big one. And then eventually they send you to a smaller kind of camp in, in, in a smaller towns. And we lived there for six years. The How I got to America is very interesting. My, that was, That's when our story is very unique. Because most of the time when you're a refugee in one country, you know, outside of your host country or neighboring one, you end up in that country and you stay there. Our asylum was rejected by the German government. So we had to every six months, just like the DACA you know, students, we had to reapply and, and with the fear of being shipped. And I recall the last two years, it was got so bad that every six months, if my, my father did not come home from his case hearing, you know, the next day, that means we need to like, leave our city in Germany and cross the border somewhere to Holland or to Belgium to apply for asylum because we were thought they caught, they want to ship us back. Luckily, some of the church members there asked, helped us to apply to the U.S. and Canada. So U.S. was our first choice because it was harder in case if we got rejected. So after two years of, you know, vetting and everything else, uh, we were told, you know, finally something hopeful like, hey, welcome to America. And I have to keep in mind, you know, in Germany, I was, you know, we had safety and some education, but I was told if I don't get my permanent residency, I couldn't go to college. And so I was at like 12th grade in gymnasium. So pretty much I wouldn't be able to go to college. And around that time, we heard about acceptance. And then unfortunately, you know, while we are preparing to come to America, 9-11 happened. And that really hit my family very hard because then we were like, well, America's not going to take a Muslim family. You know, it's just uh, just while they got attacked. And it was devastating. But then we got the call September, I recall September 21st or 20th telling us, hey, you have like three days to leave America. You passed one visa already. We just have been so busy telling you guys. Uh, and then September 25th, we arrived to Clarkson, Georgia. And what was it like growing up in Clarkson, Georgia? Was there a large Syrian or Kurdish group in Atlanta? And were there subdivisions between Iranian Kurds, Turkish Kurds, things like that? That's a great question. You know, 2001, there was really no Syrian refugee at that time. So barely, only Syrian people who came to America were came for higher education study. So the concept of a refugee, most people who leave the Middle East as a refugee for political reason, they end up in Europe. America is just a very small percentages, and usually you're very lucky when you get accepted. There were some Kurds from Iraq. I mean, they were kind of helpful, but, uh, you know, you're talking about really after 9-11 in the South. My mom was wearing the hijab. She couldn't find a job. I was 18. My brother had, my brother was too young to work. He was 14. And Clarkson at that time was different from what it is right now. Clarkson was heavily, you know, prime invested, you know, really like poor, underserved. I remember my high school, they put me in 12th grade in the uh, end of first semester. And I remember when I graduated, only 40% of people graduated from high school, senior year. So it was a very underserved school dealing with the same issue any, you know, poor neighborhood deals with. But as a refugee in America, you get about three, four months of support and then you're on your own. And the government expects you in those months to learn English, you know, get a driver's license job. So here's I am, 18 years old, only one of my family could be able to work, actually. 
because my mom couldn't find a job. Every time she applied with a hijab, they really were not happy about hiring her. So I started working as a dishwasher at a restaurant that my mom went to grab a sandwich. And I started working there like, you know, right after school when I left and, you know, put in like 30, 40 hours a week while I was in high school learning English. Yeah. And so how does your migrant background shape, I guess, where you are now as a doctor in your career? I mean, uh, you know, as refugee, when you're leaving your country, you're in a survival mode. You're kind of in a survival mode when you come to a new country because you're trying to learn the culture and establish yourself. And then you go into the growth phase, and you know, it depends on how you grow in that country. I had no choice to fail. I mean, everyone depended on me. And, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? I'm 18 years old. I don't speak English. I'm working in the dishwasher. The only hope as I had is to, like, you know, really to get an education. So I just, first thing I was like, I got to learn the language. So while I was washing dishes, I was doing, you know, I like my favorite job ever was washing dishes because I always, use that time to do something else in my brain you know, as a mundane job. So like, you don't have to even think about what you're doing. So I use that time to actually study and learn English in my head. And then, uh, you know, and I went to Georgia state university, Morehouse medical school and Emory residency. And that was really that the Emory university hospital is right across from the restaurant. I washed dishes. And that's where I finished my cardiology training. I think, you know, it's just really the resilience and, and the resilience comes from of no choice to fail. You just, you just can't look backward and you can't go backward. I mean, just the way we fled our country and there's no way to go back home because it wasn't safe. I think that same energy and mentality stayed with us. It's like, well, you know, where you can go backward and fail. You've got to keep moving forward no matter what. Going back a little bit to your university experience, where you went to what would be considered majority minority universities. And do you think that shaped your educational experience at all and had a positive or negative impact on it? Yeah, I mean, Georgia State is very diverse. You know, it's a public school, so public university. So that was a great experience because it was a whole kind of background. Uh, Morehouse definitely was a change. And I purposely wanted to go to Morehouse to learn how to serve the most underserved. Morehouse is located in a very extremely underserved, poor community. So be able to work in that environment and also work in Gravy Hospital. That was a eye-opening experience and shame me who I am. Plus, I grew up in a, you know, in Clarkston where I witnessed the, the, the whole issues, that health issues that people deal with. Like in my neighborhood, you know, only time I saw the ambulance was either someone got shot or someone got a heart attack. And I think that maybe shaped my interest in going to cardiology. And my brother actually is a trauma surgeon. I'm not sure those, and also I've worked in various clinics to volunteer and help. So I wanted to come back and help my community. And, you know, going to these schools really shaped my way of giving back in the most meaningful way. And I think the reason why I paid cardiology is because, you know, one is number one cause of death and it affects almost everyone you know. Two is it's preventable. So 80% of the diseases and cardiovascular disease are preventable, you know, and, and, and that's why I wanted to be able to help these communities to prevent heart disease. So you speak of giving back and being a physician isn't the only way you do so. You've created some mentoring initiatives, including one with Dr. O'Connor, who we interviewed in season two for refugee and pre-medical youth. Could you tell us more about those programs and where you see them going in the future? Yeah, I mean, Dr. Connor is, is the prime reason why this country is so great. She, she defines the word what America means 
is not being selfish and and be able to open yourself to to new people and and invest in them and that's what defined this, this country i mean i i was lucky to become a doctor i was able to meet a doctor through my brother while he was playing soccer and he met his daughter and through that connection i was able to have some mentorship but i realized it was a lucky encounter uh and you know when you live in a poor community uh, you know you know you you your neighbors are not doctors and lawyers and nurses and your only way you could see a doctor is when you end up in a hospital and clinic so you really don't have access to mentorship and your families are not connected to that world so the reason I wanted to give back I'm like well I want to make luck an opportunity so I want to be able to, for us to go back to those community and best way to do that through the schooling system so we start you know the young physician initiative where we went to my high school in Clarkson actually and started a mentorship program and out of that model actually with my medical students be able to now serve over 20 plus high school and colleges in Georgia and in actually in a, in a rural area in Georgia. And now the model is getting implemented in Miami and Boston too. So I had a quick follow-up question with that. I know you were speaking about your mentoring initiatives, but you've also been able to utilize mobile health technologies to bring health education to underserved areas. Could you speak a little bit more about where your passion for this came from and how you've utilized these health technologies? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of tech, and I think tech is the future of bringing care to everyone. And we, and during my research, working on different application and, and modules to bring, you know, risk stratified patient and able for them to understand their health in various ways. So we have used different projects where we did like some digital education, we used some text messaging concept, some app to translate some different concept in medicine. So all these things were uh, utilized. I think we haven't even touched the service of technology. I think when AI comes through now with all the innovation, I think language is going to be not an issue anymore. And I don't think there's going to be a need for language when artificial intelligence takes over because then you could translate anything to anything. So I had also a quick follow-up question to that. I'm actually minoring in data science in university. And I was just wondering, like, do you see a role for AI to just sort of like, since in the, in the United States, we have a shortage of doctors. Do you think like, in your experience, do you think AI could serve as a way to sort of at least alleviate some of that shortage for especially diseases that are very easily like diagnosable or that have very common symptoms that are not as complex, where like a simple AI could easily just diagnose them? So you bring a great question. I think people should not be afraid of artificial intelligence. They should look at artificial as an extension of your brain. And that's how I look at it. You know, yes, there's a shortage of doctors. Medical school cannot keep up with the shortage. That's why we have nurse practitioner and physician assistant. I think these will help a lot. But we need to make the data much more accessible. And honestly, if you work with electronic medical record, and I use several different types, they're still very, very behind what technology could offer. I think technology is going to, one is going to do, first thing is going to, in the imaging field, is going to make it much easier to read more images and help doctors to process, like, you know, you know, CT scan, radiology, MRI, biopsy with pathology is going to be read much faster, more accurate. Two, I think, or I think the one of the field AI is going to really make a huge difference is going to be cancer treatment. Because now we do only specific treatment for cancer. So, if you take the, you know, the genetics of the cancer and the person and you can match it against all the drugs available in the trials and you can find a very accurate treatment that could help the patient with the least side effect, 
that data could be available to anyone in the world, which means you just have to ship the drugs to them now. I think, I personally think I was going to change how we do education, health, and everything in our life. And we cannot be afraid of it. It's just like when cell phone came out, just when Wi-Fi came out on the internet. People were afraid of first of all, it's going to destroy everything we have. Uh, but I think it's not. It's going to things that make things much better, more available. And it's going to leverage the field for everyone. So I guess I had two more, uh, two or three more follow-up questions to that. So first, do you notice like any sort of resistance to the implementation of new biotechnologies or new AI-based medical diagnosis technologies in healthcare spaces or in hospitals? Like, do you, have you noticed any resistance from like more traditionally minded doctors or more traditionally minded nurses who believe we shouldn't be, who don't trust these technologies? And I guess the second question I want to follow up was a bit different from the first. Just in general, like Atlanta is a city with a large, very underserved and oftentimes very historically marked with a lot of historically marginalized communities. Since Atlanta is not a state that's expanded the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, what sort of ways do you see like the medical community in Georgia pro- trying to provide health care to these underserved communities since oftentimes they haven't expanded Medicaid from the federal government? So those are just my two questions. Yeah, no, this is a great question. The first question, yes, there's going to be resistance. Just like I think I always compare any technology when cash was converted to like using credit card and now to digital currency. I think it's always going to be resistant to new technology, but it's going to take time for it to be implemented. Uh, I'm a big, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm 40 years old, so I'm kind of in between the two different generations. I feel like the world's going to be run by technology. And reason why, actually, we have to keep that in mind, not just for underserved and language barrier, people are living longer. So now the fact I see 95, 97, 100-year-old patient who are actually still functional. Well, those people need more extensive care. And that's what I think technology is going to be a big help. Like this person might be perfectly good with their mind and they could think and everything else, but their physical body is not. That's why I think, uh, you know, you know, car that drive themselves is going to be the future because it's going to help these people to be more mobile. I think in medicine, it's going to be more personalized. You're not going to just get a drug that fits all. It's going to be very personal. And I think technology is going to help doctors and medical community to triage these things. But just like anything, I think what I love about technology is going to make everything available. Just like, you know, when all virtual world became more prominent in COVID, you were able to take a class at Harvard and you could be sitting in Zimbabwe in Africa with just internet access and watch that class. So I think that's what the, what I love about technology. It's going to leverage the field. It's going to provide everyone with resources that they couldn't have before. And then the second question, I think, yeah, it makes sense. Like the whole issue with, you know, political involvement in healthcare. I, I really don't like politics to be involved in healthcare. And I think there needs to be more doctors and nurses and healthcare worker in being senators and congressmen to explain how healthcare works. A lot of these rules are always done based on political reason and really not done based on scientific and healthcare findings. And and I'm, I'm just I think the only solution to make healthcare much more equitable for everyone is to get more doctors and nurses and and healthcare work in the political field and guide these people. I hope that answers the question. I know we went out of tangent for technology, but but you know I think that's going to also help with with a lot of refugee education and healthcare in the world too. So I don't know if you're involved with like any sort of international initiatives to provide healthcare to refugees or to displace peoples across the world or just provide healthcare nationally, but. What are the challenges that you've noticed with trying to provide healthcare to like 
different groups of people who might have a language barrier or who might have different like cultural barriers? And how do doctors from different backgrounds try to get to patients from a different background? No, I think that's a great question. Uh, you know, the biggest thing is really language. And I think what frustrates a lot of the healthcare, you know, field and also the patient is not understanding what has been told. And a lot of things gets lost through interpretation. You know, and also like, you have to think about when you go through an interpreter or a translator, you know, there's like a, the patient has to wait for your response and then you have to wait for their response. It's not a natural connection. So that takes the empathy and compassion out. That's what I think language is the biggest issue. Once you tackle the language issue, then delivery of care becomes a little more easier because then you're dealing only with the underserved community concepts. And you take, once you, once you take the language out and that's going to require more, more effort from the government and providing some resources. And I do believe people forget that. For a lot of refugees, prevention is not something that they get taught or live with in their country. Most of the healthcare in a lot of countries is, I get sick, I go to the doctor. Nobody goes to the doctor when they're not sick. Not like here you go to get a colonoscopy, where you could go get a you know, mammogram or a, you know, cancer, cervical cancer screen. That's not something they know about. So that's one thing I'm always like, a very big into it. How can we convince refugees to be more focused on prevention instead of rather waiting for the disease to happen? So, you know, when I'm in a clinic volunteering, most of the time I'm, de- I'm dealing with basic healthcare issues like hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol. But as basic as they sound, if you could treat these things or prevent them, you'll prevent actually a lot of diseases. If you could educate someone that smoking is bad, you could prevent a lot of like, you know, you know, you know, diseases. So, I think one other thing I wish we could focus more on the language barrier, because once you focus, you take out the language out and bring shows compassion, empathy toward the patient, then I think you could accomplish more. And that's what I think technology is going to play a big role. I believe with a field of data analysis and, you no, know, I mean, language is just a bunch of data put together and the artificial intelligence, you'll be able to talk to someone in real time and they could hear in their language. And if you could apply your emotional emotion and your language and your tone, yeah, I think you're able to uh, get your message through the patient much more accurately and, uh, and, and encourage them to take care of themselves. And to go off of that, I know you're talking about how important language is, and I know I think you can speak four languages. So how has, you know, having that ability helped you in your career or like your own personal growth? Yeah, no, I did, because one thing is I realized how challenging it is not to speak a different language. You know, being myself, you know, in Syria, I spoke Arabic because I went to school, but at home I spoke Kurdish. But when I went to Germany, I had to learn a new language. And when I came to America, I had to learn English. So I learned, I know exactly what it means to not understand something, and what it means to learn a language. You know, and I learned these languages at different ages. You know, I, it's it's tough. You know, it helped me now being more, compassion to our patient and be more patient and understand at the same time also understand what is you know being my parents interpreter when I used to go with them to the doctor I also see what is important for the patient so for example every patient and it's not just uh, people who don't speak English either American I like to repeat myself so I if some if the patient is doing well I'm like great job keep what you're doing but if there's an issue or something I need to change in their plan what I want to make sure you get a, the appropriate testing I tend to repeat myself three, four times in a conversation. And the reason why I do that, because my father and my mom like that when the doctor repeats himself, because it makes and forces actually how important this is. 
And it helps everyone in the room to remember this. So there's a small things I use. For example, I tell all my patients now, even if they don't, if they don't speak English, bring your bottles of your drugs. Don't just bring like a, like a sheet. Just bring your bottles. For, I have to look at it myself, see what you're taking. So these small things help. Like now, you don't have to speak English for me to realize what medication you're taking and what you're taking it for, because I know what exactly what they're for. So that you know, these little things makes a difference. I tell you something. I do, for example, if someone has an abnormal EKG at baseline, but they're doing fine, I make them take a picture of their EKG. I'm like, hey, put that somewhere in your phone. What I take a picture of your drugs. What I take a picture of your next appointment. So at least you don't lose that. So I try to use technology in my favor to help the patient to manage the care better. Are you currently living in the Atlanta area? Yes, I work for Northside Hospital. I'm a, one of the cardiologists there. And I live in uh, Gwinnett County outside of Atlanta. So in a suburb. Okay, okay. So uh, I have a lot of friends with the Atlanta area. I'm somewhat familiar with it. I guess, like, what's your favorite part about living in Atlanta? And just in general, like, what are some of your go-to spots in the Atlanta metro? So I could tell you, like, Atlanta is not Georgia, right? I think people, when they think about the South and the Atlanta is, is almost like, I think, is a mixture of all the different major city combined with a historical diverse background. I just love the diversity of Atlanta, you know, you know, especially what I live in Gwinnett County is like, you know, you have all kind of cultural background, religions living in a small, you know, city sometimes. So that's what I love about Atlanta, diversity, the history of Atlanta. Uh, I like the fact that we have, an, you know, the major airport in Delta here. Uh, you know, I like to hang out a lot of like Middle Eastern restaurants. One of my favorite spots also like, I'm a big coffee drinker and not because of medical school. I actually went through medical school and residency without drinking coffee. I just got, I got more hooked up to coffee later in life and refuge coffee. I just love that place. You know, is it, it hires refugee and trains them to be ready for the workforce and the coffee is amazing and they're located in Clarkston. So that's a spot I highly recommend to attend. Uh, a friend of mine has a, you know, an Iraqi restaurant has amazing food. It's called Dijla, which is also located right next to Cross and Dijla Lounge. Amazing food has like some of the best uh, Middle Eastern food. So those are the spots. You know, I like to always go to Clarkston and I at least like to go to Refuge Coffee. So I'm going to take my laptop and do some of my work. One of the things why I do that, I like to support the coffee shop, but also when people recognize I'm a physician and most people know that I always, while I'm like doing something, people come like say hello and ask me a question about certain healthcare issue they have. So I like to go there to be accessible to the people. So I kind of like enjoy being there, but at the same time, kind of allow me to be a service to people who can find someone like me in their neighborhood. This is kind of random, but have you ever tried the varsity Atlanta? Yes, yes. Uh, the food is good, but it's very heavy. Yeah, I sort of uh, every time I've gone there, I've noticed like it's it's very heavy food, and the wait times are super long. But I just know it's the Atlanta staple that at least whenever someone visits Atlanta, they should go there at least once. So, yeah, I just had yeah, to. Ask you know, that. but there's so much food now in Atlanta. I mean, you know, like I'm in Gwinnett County, some of the best Mexican food. You know, where from, are you based in? Are you based in Gwinnett, Decatur, Alpharetta? No, no, Gwinnett. I'm based in Lilburn, you know, Lawrenceville. Lawrenceville, okay, Lawrenceville, okay. Yeah, but you know, I tell people like if you just look up Beefer Highway, they have all the kind of Asian Hispanic food that you probably, I mean, some of the food I tried is better than some of the food I had in Mexico itself. So, 
Yeah, I've um, I love driving near Buford Highway. Um, me and my friends were actually planning to go there on the trip soon. So, yeah, no, uh, I I know Buford Highway is a very diverse area with a lot of stuff to do. Do you like uh, some like any of the museum spots in Atlanta? Have you ever gone the Beltline, Pond City Market? Yeah, those are good spots. You know, is uh, I I having a two year and a four year old now. I like to do different things that I used to not do. So I'm kind of like, you know, go to the Fernbank Museum. I like to take them to the aquarium. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's what some of the things, when you have children, you, pers- you know, things you do kind of changes. I know one suggestion people always have for young families in Atlanta is to go to the Beltline in Atlanta. So just to take, just to go cycling on that. So that could be a fun place. Yes, yes. Those, you know, Atlanta has a lot. Of, even like those different small city, like Norcross, Duluth, Lawrenceville, they all have their own downtown. Have like been remodeled, and they look like almost, almost like an old downtown with all the restaurants in there and walkable areas. So I do recommend people to try the different smaller cities too, because you know Atlanta. The issue with Atlanta is like I just came from New York. In Atlanta, you can't really walk. You know, from places to places, you gotta have to drive. And, you know, it's really, there's really no a clear downtown like you have in New York with the avenues and, you know, Times Square. That's something I, I hope that the government invests in, you know, especially at where the Five Point and underground area is. That's a prime spot that could be become uh, technically what downtown is, where people could go just take the, you know, the metro there and just, just hang out and walk everywhere and grab some food. That's something that's missing in Atlanta right now. I know Marta, I've gone on Marta before. I know Marta is like decent, but even then it doesn't extend out to most of the suburbs. It doesn't even extend out to Decatur or to Duluth or to any of the other suburbs. So I know that they're trying to invest in that. And I know that they're trying to build a light rail project around the entire Beltline corridor, but that's, it's still a work in progress. So hopefully Atlanta definitely has some, definitely improves its transit. But yeah, it's a great city to live in. And yeah. Focusing more into the future, Dr. Kelly, do you plan to stay in Georgia for the next few years? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is my home. You know, I, I build my network and my my foundation here and all my work I do with the community. So I'm, I'm definitely ingrained in this place. And, you know, and we have a Kurdish saying, you know, whoever taught you the alphabet, you owe a book. And, you know, America has made me who I am and I own it to this country, but also more so the state of Georgia and Atlanta have been a crucial part of my success and my family. So uh, I want to be, I want to stay here and I want to keep investing in this, you know, in this country and also in the city. Right. That's beautiful. And looking back at everything, what is the thing that you are the proudest of so far and why? The most proudest thing I've been part of is, you know, just to be able to become you know, an inspiration to someone. When I hear people emailing me and messaging me and saying that they read my story or heard about me, kind of gave them some hope that things could get better. That's really what I'm proud of. That I, I never imagined myself when I was this dishwasher trying to struggle with my SIT and how I could pay to go shadow someone or take the bus. You know, when I was struggling with that, I never thought I'm going to be an inspiring you know, story or a person to anyone. So this is something very humbling to me and and it keeps me, you know, going. Looking into the future, what do you hope to accomplish? Do you have any future goals or maybe something that you want to do? 
Yeah, you know, I, 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 my own, my, my, my biggest dream is to one day to be able to practice medicine for free, and to be able financially independent, to be able to go work and for free, and you know, in underserved clinics and provide care to as many people as I can. That's really my ultimate dream. You know, the beauty of of medicine, medicine is like a language. Once you, you once you, you know, able to master it, you could communicate and help so many people. And the beauty about medicine also is you could be very old now, except some, you know, surgical specialty. You know, my field, so long as I have a brain and I could talk, I'll be able to help as many people as I can, you know, by diagnosing diseases and, you know, providing treatment. So that's really my ultimate dream. And to be able to, you know, and just keep inspiring people to keep going and, and help as many people as I can. Just the last question would be, is there anything else that you want our audience to know before we wrap up the interview? No, that's always a, a great uh, a statement. And I just want to allow people that hopefully know in my story that they look at refugee as an investment in their countries and cities rather than a burden. You know, I'll, and again, I think of refugee who come in like me. I came at the age of 18, no language, no skill, nothing to offer this country. And people helped me and gave me the opportunity. And now I'm giving back and serving. That's something to, to always keep in mind and hopeful that the refugee could be an investment in your city and society rather than a burden. Yeah, that is definitely the goal of our podcast to just really illustrate how positive refugees can be in society. So thank you so much for sharing your story and telling us about your career and what you hope for the future. We really enjoyed having you. Yeah, and thank you so much, everyone, for your investment, you know, and your work you're doing. I think it's very important. That was our hosts, Diana, Rohit, and Thrisha, talking to Dr. Haval Kelly, a cardiologist at Emory University. We discussed his journey to medicine, his current passions of mentorship and medical technology, and his future plans. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Kelly, visit his website, havalkelly.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. This show was produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your hosts for this week were Diana Clark, Rohit Swain, and Thrisha Mote. This episode was edited by Diana Clark and Thrisha Mote. Our executive producers are Isha Hegday and Jackie Burnett. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.